Welcome to the Absent Father Podcast, a weekly conversation where we discuss the impacts in all areas of our life of growing up with an absent father, how to overcome them, and the superpowers we create along the way. I'm your host, Rodney Miller, executive coach, MBA, and son of an absent father. You can learn more about me and get in touch by visiting www.rodneymuller.com. We got greatness by choice. We got gravity by chance. All right, welcome to another episode of the Absent Father Podcast. It is a pleasure to have you and to introduce the guest on today's episode. Uh, his name is Niall. He has a very unique story as he will share the product of a biracial lesbian couple conceived through artificial insemination. That's a mouthful, but it's a really fascinating conversation with Niall. And one of the things that <clears throat> I think is particularly interesting about this conversation is some of the things he gets into around um, finding out his own identity, who he is as a man, um, and later the superpowers that he created from that experience uh, that has led him into doing some really deep and meaningful men's work, uh, among other things. The other thing that I really love and I think this is important. Uh, as he will share, you know, in his experience, he didn't, he wasn't, he didn't have the experience of being personally abandoned by his father, yet the traits and the impact is still present. And I think this is so true um, that it's not necessarily, and I, I've never felt that this is because um, our absent fathers are bad people per se. I think most of the time it's it's circumstances and an experience of their life that has them has it occur. And so whether, you know, your your father died at a young age uh, or um, in Niall's case was simply not present due to artificial insemination or in my case where, uh, you know, my father just was not present from the very beginning. Um, and there are lots of reasons for that, but... I, I think it's so valuable to come together to hear other people's stories, to hear other people's traits and their impact, because what we do when we don't have that awareness is we just beat ourselves up for an experience that we are having. And I think the greatest gift of this conversation and these awesome people that are willing to share their stories is that we can connect to the shared experience that we had of growing up with an absent or distant father. And uh, we can learn to heal and have compassion and understanding for ourselves and the impact to us, not so we can feel sorry for ourselves or blame someone else, but so that we can move forward in a whole and healthy and loving way for the rest of our lives. So without further ado, I can't wait for you to hear Niall's story. Uh, Please share the podcast. Please rate the podcast. Uh, share it with somebody that you think it would be helpful. That would be a huge gift to me. All right, here we go. All righty. Well, okay. it is. It's my my pleasure uh, to welcome Niall to the show, to the Absent Father Podcast. Um, tell me, uh, I, you know, where I'd love to start is just kind of hearing your absent father's story. It's uh, pretty unique, I would say. Um, yeah. yet, uh, you know, and getting to know you and, and learning about you, um, obviously share a lot of the similar traits and, and superpowers from growing through that experience. So tell us your story. Who are you? Tell us your story. Where are you from? And, uh, what's your absent father story? Well, first off, thanks for having me on the, the podcast. It's an honor. Um, yeah. So my ab absent father story is interesting because my father never left me. I just never had one. I was never connected with him. Um, I was a product of uh, a biracial lesbian couple, and I was conceived through the process of uh, artificial insemination. So basically, my parents wanted to, you know, my moms were lesbians, and they went to the sperm bank, and they, I think the process was they could see half, like the, the, the sperm bank owner would show them half of a man's face. And you'd get the background of like, what he went to school for and what his personality was like. And then um, they would choose based off that criteria. 
So I was born into a situation where like, I had two parents that loved me and really wanted me in the world, but there was this void, you know, of like, clearly I was different from other people. And, you know, as I grew into my own consciousness, you know, and, and my identity, it was like, it was, the experience was kind of feeling incomplete. Um, so me personally, uh, all throughout my childhood, it was, I actually hid it. I hid the fact that it made me insecure. Um, I felt like there was something wrong with it and I wanted to be like everybody else. I wanted to be normal. Um, so that's a little bit about the, the background of it. Wow. Um, I'm curious, do you, do you remember, um, the first time that you realized that it was different to have two moms or, Mm. you know, that's a good question. Um, it would be in public, I, I would say probably maybe first or second grade when you really start to share that stuff with people. I'm trying to think of a specific memory. Um, well, another interesting piece is like, because I'm thinking back to elementary school, um, even so it was it was unorthodox enough having lesbian moms. And but the other piece was being biracial in mm. in for those of you who have seen me, I'm very racially ambiguous. It's very hard to tell what you know, usually the black de- gene is dominant and it's it, I'm really mixed. <laughs> uh so it was like, I, th- I would say around elementary school, um, in public school, when it was, I, I didn't really reveal, you know, I, I used, I would compare myself to people and I would see, you know, the mom and the dad. And, but also like, I wanted to have an identity um, around race. So in elementary school, I wanted to be a white kid, you know, so I'd spike my hair and, you know, I would, I would dress like a white kid and I liked white girls and, you know, it was like, I, I wanted that the piece of that identity. So I would say it started somewhere in, in elementary school when I started to see how other families were and the way that other people were and the uh, desire to be normal. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you know, I think, you know, the similarity in our stories is, you know, although mine was through a different process, I guess the more natural process, I suppose. Um, my father still felt like a sperm donor in the sense that, you know, he just never existed in my experience of life. Um, and so I, it was probably not really a fair question. Like, you know, when's the moment when, cause it's more like you don't even know. So, it, cause I just remember it kind of coming in sort of phases, you know, like, oh, um, you know, it's fine. You know, I love how my life is or whatever. And then also being like, oh, I wish I had a dad sometimes. Um, and I really connected, I cannot imagine what it would have been like for your experience. Cause you have like, in addition to the normal difficulty of, um, finding your identity, um, to have so many things outside of, you know, quote unquote normal, um, to, to find yourself not only like from a racial perspective, but, but even, I, I remember like trying to figure out what is it to be a man without sort of the the understanding or guidance or groundedness of being a man. So that must've been, how did you navigate that experience? Mm. Um, well, I mean, I kind of collected role models hmm. and also it, it um, I wanted to be like other people. So I think that was my, the way that I coped hmm. um, early was like, if I can be more like other people, then, you know, like that, that gave me some sense of grounding or identity. Hmm. Um, because that was, I think that's a bit, one of the biggest pieces for me was identity, like being grounded in like, yeah, a man or a boy or, you know, like a black kid or a white kid, or is I wanted to feel at home, hmm. you know, in myself. Yeah. And, um, and so, yeah, it was a lot, a lot of through comparison and trying to be like other people and, and, you know, kind of borrowing personality traits from people. And, you know, I had a lot of different role models. Um, but I never, there was never one that I fully like accepted. You know, mm. I didn't have that. And, and 
was interesting is I didn't really have a desire to like, I wanted to know who my dad was, or I wanted that presence, but I didn't really accept the role models that were given to me. Mm. So it was, there was still kind of some resistance or some distance um, with me allowing, uh, you know, one of those role models. So, yeah. Well, it's so interesting. Like um, there's a couple of things I'm present to, you know, one is how, you know, we were talking earlier about it. It is sort of a cosmic joke or gift, depending on how you look at it. Cause it's like, wow, like in literally no way do you fit in any kind of box. Um, in no way. And then, you know, I can just imagine how challenging and how confusing and how frustrating. Um, but at the same time, what, a what must've been, and I'm sure we'll get to this later, like just extraordinary superpowers out of that experience. You know, mm-hmm. it, it's like all of the pressure on you from all these areas sort of brought these special gifts forward. Um, it's really totally. Cool. Yeah. What, what are, I mean, this is a little prelude, but what, what are, what are some of the gifts that you think you got like kind of through that, like never, I mean, struggling with identity and, and, you know, how to be a man and am I white? Am I black? Am I like, well, just real quick before that question, I want to um, throw in a little bit more context. So mm. one of my mom, my birth mom is from Shaker Heights, Ohio. She's white, blonde. She's, she is stereotypically a very white woman um, and a total trailblazer. She's a, she's an amazing person um, and grew up in a very traditional uh, household in a small, you know, or in a nice neighborhood um, and she ended up, you know, opening up to her sexuality and becoming a lesbian and moving to California. And, um, but my, my other mom, my adoptive mom is, uh, she's from Compton from in, in LA. So she's from like, you know, she's from the ghetto, she's from the hood and, uh, she's totally like a lot of people mistake her for a man She's very masculine um, and she was the only one in her family to make it out of the ghetto and do well for herself. So just a little context of the very stark differences between these two women, you know, wow. and it was like, so, I mean, there was already going to be kind of a, um, a challenge to integrate both of these cultures, you know, and, and getting the gifts and, and the, the struggles and the conditioning of, of both sides of the culture. So it was an interesting mix to, to navigate. So that was just another factor. Wow. Wow. How did, how did your, how did your moms come together? Um, well, they met such an interesting, like contrast, you know, like, uh, you know, you know, white lady from Ohio (laughs) moves to California, marries, um, and finds her love, you know, that's like, so interesting. And then where, where they end up like settling together? Well, they, so they met in San Diego. Okay. And they both were in um, adoptions. They've always worked with kids. Mm. That was always important. So I think that's what brought them together. Mm. Um, and it's, it's, it's interesting to see, you know, you're asking about the gifts and stuff and to see the beauty of it too, because um, like I was, I think when I was one or two, I have a picture, I should send it to you an email. It's uh we were on the front page of the Gay and Lesbian Times. Hmm. And this was back, you know, I was born in 94. So this was, this was when it was a really way different commercial. time. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, marching in the parade was like a big deal. And hmm. um, so they were all like, they were all involved in, in this culture. Um, so, but just looking back, it's just, and, you know, to see the picture, it's, it was just so, it's, it felt so revolutionary. Mm. Um, it was revolutionary. Yeah. <laughs> really was. Yeah. It's, it's, it's interesting to, you know, talk about that because you're, you know, still relatively young, but being born in, you were born in 94. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like, it's, it's fascinating to think about how much, uh, 
our society has shifted particularly around, you know, having two moms, it's like, you know, there's still parts of the country that you probably wouldn't want to be, but um, how much more socially acceptable and, you know, um, okay it is, but like coming from that space, like it really, you know, represences, you know, it's not like this was 2019 when you were growing through this experience. This was like the nineties. I mean, it was a totally different world. Yeah. And, and there was, um, I think I carried the cultural burden, um, the, the conditioning and the resistance, um, and the shame, Hmm. um, of the culture at that time, you know, Hmm. I think I was very sensitive to that and seeing how other people perceived it and that it wasn't um, normal yet. You know, I think I really took that on and then it was a process of, of kind of shedding that, you know, relinquishing it. Hmm. Um, So we got a couple open doors here, but one thing I was also (laughs) curious about possibilities. One thing I was also curious about is, um, you know, with your adopted mom, um, you know, I always wondered, you know, I think this is true for step parents um, and adoptive parents, I think are, it's a different thing. You know what I mean? It's like a true, like commitment in the same sense of any blood connection. But I always wonder just from, you know, being a parent now myself and like um, even seeing um, some of my friends who, you know, there's a biological mother and then you know, there's sort of the adoptive parent. And I was just wondered how, um, if that would be difficult, you know, for either the, the child or, or the adopted, you know, the non-biological parent. Um, you know, I certainly think that about my stepfather, like, you know, I can only imagine, especially when I was like really trying being like, you're not my kid. Of course, he never said that to me, thank God. But um, do you think that either you or her, like there was any challenges to navigate in your in your relationship or connection? That's a great question. Uh, And yeah, there was, I mean, so she always, she, she never disowned me in any way. She would never bring it up. She was my mom. She just didn't, she wasn't really interested in having children, you know, like Mm -hmm. physically having them, (laughs) Um, which in my, my other mom was very interested (laughs) in, uh, but so she, she never, but she always gave me unconditional love. Hmm. She was, you know, I was always hers, but I actually at, uh, I don't know, I'm not sure what age, maybe yeah. Elementary, late elementary, maybe middle school. Um, I would actually say things to her, like, you know, like you're not even my real mom. Hmm. And, uh, and that's, you know, thinking back on it, how, how hurtful that was. Hmm. Um, so I don't think she was ever really like it was never in her space. It yeah. never conditioned her love. Mm. Um, but I used it as an excuse to withhold. Mm. You know, I used it as an excuse to blame. Yeah. Um, and you know, looking back on it, it's like I just I needed somewhere for it to go. You know. Of course. Yeah. So well, she sounds like the 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 perfect person to hold the space <laughs> for that. Yeah. You know, like. Uh, given where she came from and what she held, you know, um, it's really, it's really special. You know, I, um, I think it gets back to kind of one of the other things that I wanted to talk about, which is like, you know, how this sense of letting support in, Mm. um, you know, one of the, one of the biggest healing moments for me was when, um, you know, I, similarly, my stepdad came into my life when I was around eight and, um, naturally was not the perfect father I was looking for, uh, but a really good man that always accepted me just like his own child, um, went out of his way to make it always fair. Um, but I never could call him dad. Like I could not say the word. Um, and I realized many years later, uh, after attending the landmark forum, I was like, Oh, I've been withholding this and it's not it's actually, it's not that it wasn't fair. Like I, you know, I can, I know why it was there for me to not say it. Um, but I was like, Oh, I, I should call you dad. Like you are, <laughs> you know, and to withhold it, it was like my hurt part, mm. you know? Mm. Um, but so that's like I, for, for you, you actually felt like you felt that from him. Like you felt like he was your dad. It was just yeah. communicating it. 
I just couldn't say it. Yeah. Like, I couldn't say yeah. the word. It, it just had, it, it had so much emotional energy. Um, and it's still weird. I call him dad now, but it's hard. I have to like make myself. Yeah. Um, but anyway, what, what I was asking yeah. is because, um, you know, you talked about letting support in and, um, you know, I think that's a really common trait amongst people with absent or distant fathers. Um, I know for me, it was like, um, I believe looking back now, it was, I was so afraid to be left or um, disappointed that I would only let people in so far. And when it came to actually getting supported, I was, I'm like, nope. <laughs> and I'm still really, I, I, you know, run on relatively little support, but one of my lifelong practices has been to learn how to bring that in more and more and more. So how, how for you, um, it sounds like you noticed that showing up with your, with your mom. Um, how, what about the rest of your life? Like, do you notice anything around? Oh yeah. That's a really great question as well. Um, yeah, I have a, I, I created a story from my childhood that people couldn't be with the fullest, ex, the fullest expression of me. Mm. So there was always only so far that people could love and support me. And then it would reach a tipping point. And then it was like, nope, I can't, you know, we can't be with that. That's bad. That's wrong. And I think I would subconsciously test that in people. Mm. Like, oh, you love me, huh? Like, oh, you you support me. Well, let's see if you support me, you know, when I act out in this way. Mm. Um, and it was, you know, that to me is like, is the masculine is creating a container and a space to hold all of you and to be with all of you mm. and not to make any of it wrong. Um, and I felt like I was always, I felt like that wasn't possible. Mm. And, and I tested that. And, um, yeah, it, it was something that I never really received, you know, and I, and I had so much evidence yeah. around like, Oh, this is, there's always a threshold. And once you get past that threshold, it's like, that's what people can't be with. So it, it caused me to, to leave a lot inside and repress a lot. And it's basically like, am I going to be normal? Am I, am I going to be able to function in society? Then I can't be all of me. And I think that had a huge role to play with not having that, um, that figure in my life, you know, and, and not having that kind of support. Like, yeah. I, I think a lot of men without, uh, without fathers or boys, it's, they're almost like they occur, they occur as untamable. Hmm. You know, like that yeah. child that you were telling me about, and it's like they, there's no boundaries, mm -hmm. you know, and they 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 need that. And um, yeah, no, yeah. yeah, it's so interesting. Like when I think about like sort of the and you know, for everyone out there, we're speaking in very traditional terms, um, understanding that you know, masculine, feminine can show up in many ways, but traditionally, like the sort of the essential nature of the father energy. Um, it's very much like this. I always think about it like in terms of a boundary, like you said, where we're sort of um, uh, like um, like the. I think about from from the army, like there's these range limits. Like you know, there's a right side to the range and a left side, and you don't go beyond those limits, right? And you know that on the one hand, of course, even just hearing that, I'm sure for both of us, we're like, ooh, I don't want that. <laughs> You know, because nobody wants to be contained, I think, especially yeah. when you grow up with an absent or distant father. But yeah. um, the the thing that I think is the real casualty of not having that kind of grounded, like, this is not okay, and this is okay, that that I think the father ideally provides, is that you also don't know when when it's enough. You don't like I have no concept of, Oh, this is okay. Like I'm enough now. Mm. Um, did you have, how did that play out for you or, that's, or how does it play really out now? Cause connection. it's still playing out for me. That is a really good connection. Um, yeah, because it's, there's boundary, like 
there's there's boundaries around what you you know like what you can and what you can't do and then there's also boundaries like um that's a big thing for me is is that nothing is i don't i don't really know when things are enough even now you know it's like when i when i integrate a new tool or like a new philosophy or a new physical practice or it's like i don't really know when to stop mm-hmm. you know it's like so so when it's translated so so it was you know, as a child, it was acting out and, um, you know, maybe some addictive behaviors, you know, and, and, uh, but as an adult now into, you know, getting into personal development, it's like, I, I, I played, I applied the same energy to that, you know, to where it was like, I didn't have a boundary. And I think, um, the, having like knowing when is enough is actually also synonymous when knowing that you're enough, Mm. you know, like that you're enough as you are. And there's no, you know, like you don't have to keep chasing things. And, and, uh, and that's something that's really big for me now, Mm. you know, is like not having things to prove or um, just really accepting that I'm enough. And I think um, that is kind of quintessential, like masculine or, or male virtue. Mm-hmm. you know, a man that can, can be with all of that and hold it and kind of lead you through it and, um, and set boundaries and, and say what needs to be said, but do it from a place of love. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, I want to get into the, to kind of how your experience has influenced the men's work that you're up to. Um, and kind of dig into that a little bit. But before that, I'd love to hear like, um, you know, I'm imagining you kind of navigating your life, uh, you know, as a young man, uh, as a, as a boy, you know, um, trying to figure out your identity, um, not being able to let support in having feelings that you probably had no idea. You know, I, I know that I was angry and scared and, didn't want any help at a really young age. And I was Mm. stubborn as hell. Um, But, you know, for me, uh, you know, my, my, like my family members and, you know, I grew up, I was born in the early eighties and which sounds so long ago now. Um, But, you know, I was, I was, uh, you know, people would call me a bastard, like, because I grew Mm. up, you know, cause I was from a, um, you know, single parent, non-married origin, right? And my father was absent. So there was there was even a stigma then. But what what I find interesting and what I'm curious about is if you could kind of walk us through, um, you know, you, you shared before the show that there was, you know, you went through some challenges growing up, it sounds like. Um, and I'd love to hear about that. And, and I, I think it's really great. And one of the things I really hope that people get from this conversation um, and all the conversations is that, uh, you know, for me, I was, I was angry. I was sad. Um, I was navigating life without somebody that I needed and people would, you know, they made that mean stuff about me versus Mm. like, Oh wow, this, this little boy, he doesn't have a dad like, Mm. or he lost his dad or whatever the story is. Um, and so then it became like, I'm a bad person versus I'm having feelings that I don't know how to navigate and support that way. So a long story to ask you, like, tell us about the struggles. Tell us about, you know, what were your challenges growing up and kind of, you know, I'd love to, you know, hear that whole story from, you know, going through yeah. grade school and high school and that thing. Well, I think the the way that people reacted or responded to my behavior was very much that it was wrong. So, um, I think from what, eight, eight to maybe 15 or something like that, maybe, maybe it was a little bit older. Um, but we, I I was like a a guinea pig, like a a medication guinea pig. It was, there was always, you know, it was probably at least twice a month, you know, we were, um, I was, I saw psychologists and psychiatrists in all different kinds of, of, medical professionals. And, uh, there was, there was, it was always figuring out what was wrong with me, you know, and, and what were they trying to, um, 
Like, what were you doing that was considered bad? No, it was really like, when I look back on it, it wasn't anything really crazy. You know, I wasn't that like, you know, I got into fights and stuff, but I wasn't very violent. Um, it wasn't anything really crazy. It was literally like I had this, this gift of being able to like poke people's buttons hmm. and really piss people off. <laughs> like it, it, and it, I think it was back to the boundary thing. It was like, I was, I, I would test people hmm. and it, it was kind of a superpower in a way I could hmm. see what would make them tick. But I, 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 I always like just behave like it was just behavior stuff. You know, I was, hmm. I was talking too much and yeah, you know, and I would do spontaneous impulsive stuff. Mm. And, um, but looking back on it, it was never like, you know, I never like cut anybody's finger off or like, it was just, I knew how to get under the skin of the, you know, whoever was the authority. Mm. And, um, was it mostly getting in trouble with authority figures? Oh yeah. 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 Ah. That was pretty much all of it. Ah, got it. Yeah. Yeah. It's so, so, it's so true. Right. Cause like, you're like, I think that, you know, when you grow up in that experience, you don't want, you don't, you almost refuse to be dominated. Um, and I think that I, I talked about this in the, the first season, but, um, you know, I think that this is a, this is one of the big challenges with, um, with this interaction with police um, is that police are very much an authority figure. And even for me, you know, and I have the privilege of being treated a certain way just because of the way that I look as a white male. But, um, you know, with police, when you come in with that domination, um, for a kid with an absent father, you're, you're predisposed to really avoid that domination at all costs. And I think that that leads to a lot of the, a lot of the challenges, you know. And again, not informed by what's really going on with these young people. It's just, you're bad and you should be a certain way. Yeah. And they're just playing into the story. Yeah. Yeah. And it was mostly women. It was a lot of women teachers that would like, I would kind of rebel against. And I always felt like it always occurred as being like trying to be tamed, you know, and it was trying to be changed. Um, so, uh, so yeah, so I was I was put on they were testing some crazy stuff. Like I remember one time it was like 10 years old and uh they tried some new medication on me. And I was frantically playing with my toys and I remember being in the experience, but I actually also remember kind of observing myself and seeing the reactions from my parents that were like I mean, it, it was probably some kind of it was definitely some kind of amphetamine. And I'm like very frantically playing with these toys in like, you know, inebriated. And like, I remember like the concern for them of like, like, what are we doing to this kid? You know, like, you know, my mom is recovering like amphetamine user, you know, and she was probably just really, but I remember that was very, uh, even, even as young as I remember observing it and being like, wow. Wow. You know, so, um, but I was put on antidepressants, like I think Soloft and uh, Prozac. Uh, what age was ones. that? I think it was like probably 11 or 12. Wow. And, um, and I see the intention, like I, I'm really close with my parents now and I see their intention and I see their love and I just see the mm-hmm. limitations. Of, totally. You know, and really, and really the limitations of our, perspective you know that's why like i care so much about this conversation because um in so much of our world and you know absent father is one aspect of the kind of traumatic experiences that human beings have but we don't talk about it right it's not like it was like oh it's in such a vacuum it's like niall is misbehaving at class let's fix niall's behavior by doing this and it has, it's, it's like so um, blindsided, you know, mm-hmm. and I think that's true today and, and, you know, both in physical health, but certainly in mental health, we just, mm-hmm. nobody was like, oh, you know, how are you dealing spiritually with how you entered the world? <laughs> you know, like <laughs> nobody's having that conversation uh, or, or a perspective like, oh, maybe, maybe he needs different accommodations. Maybe he needs like a, you know, once an hour, he needs to like go blow off steam or something. 
That's so true. Yeah. Yeah. It is so true. Um, so, and then, uh, go, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, so it sounds like you were, so, you know, you're misbehaving, they're treating all kinds of ways. And then are you like, this is up into high school or? So when I got to high school, I started to research like the, the benefits of different like substances. You know, I started to, to use marijuana. I was looking into like, you know, uh, uh, psychedelics and um, I was doing the research around the medicine that I was taking too. And I, so I started to kind of do my own research. And this is when I started to establish much more of my own identity. And um, I decided I didn't want to take them anymore. And I was, as my mom would call it, self-medicating. Hmm. Um, Which and... so many of us do. Certainly I did in high school as well. I didn't realize it or how dangerous I, how much danger I put myself in. Yeah. But certainly that's about the time, right? Where you, you, you have so many feelings and emotions, you don't know what to do with them. You start self-medicating. So, so yep. you, so you quit the antidepressants and those yeah. sort of things. And this and is then, something they, they told me that it would take, you know, they, there was so much warning around coming off of them and you had to do it really slowly. And there was this, you know, it was this kind of fight back and forth between um, myself, my parents, and then the doctors. And I just stopped taking them just all at once. And, um, what I was doing was actually working better for me. So, um, so then eventually, you know, like th this was, then, then this became more of a fight for freedom. And, uh, I was even without doing any hard drugs or anything, I was sent to rehab in, uh, in 10th grade. And basically exposed, I mean, just thinking about it, it's so, it's really messed up. Because here's a kid that was like interested in expanding his consciousness and, you know, like had pretty pure intentions in a way. And I was thrown into this rehab where people were detoxing off of heroin, hmm. you know, and I learned all about these other drugs. Good environment and, for you. <laughs> and the messed up thing was I stayed there twice as long as everybody else because I refused to call myself an addict. I ref I refused, you know, it was like, it was fighting. People were, were trying to put definitions onto me, you know? And, and it was like this fight for freedom. It was like the fight to be me. And, um, and like you, Rodney, I, I was stubborn as hell. I still am, you know? And, uh, and I had built up this kind of protection of the untrustable structure, the untrustable masculine in the world. Hmm. Um, yeah, because everybody's trying to fix you and dominate you. Um, and, you know, I, I, it's interesting because looking back now, you know, of course, when I was 13, and I can hear it even in your share, it's like you knew everything, like you knew it all. You were, you know, um, you were the man, you know, at 13, right? And um, um, I really felt like that. Like, I really felt like I had control and I knew what I was doing and, you know, but now looking back and if I, if I'm thinking about like my own, if I were thinking about myself as a son or a daughter, mm. I would be like terrified, you know, and really worried about what, what's going on with this human, you know, but so, so much of the time where we start is, you know, where people try to do their best, which is, you know, discipline or fixing the behavior or, um, you know, send them to military academy or some, you know, whatever ways that we can fix or control the behavior yeah. without addressing what's going on underneath, you know? Yeah. Without going deeper. Yeah. 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 Okay. So how did you go from rehab to like, so you go to rehab, you get out and then what? So basically um, it was, I mean, my parents were thinking of sending me to, cause I still refuse to kind of submit or surrender you know, to the structures and what they saw and, and knowing too, you know, my mom was an addict and she had a very skewed kind of perspective on some of the stuff that I was doing. Mm. And, um, so and also we probably basically, wise perspective as well. Oh yeah, no, totally. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, um, so we basically made a pact at some point, they were going to send me away to this really intense, 
like I don't even remember what it was called, but it was like basically the stories that I heard was they they come into your room in the middle of the night and they literally take you and they transport you to like I don't know somewhere across the country and you stay there for like a year. It was this really intense uh, rehabilitation program, and so it was getting to that point, which would have really severed the connection with us. You know, that would have probably really messed me up. Mm. Um, and, uh, but we ended up coming up with a pact, which is basically like, my mom is like, look, I don't approve of what you're doing. And, um, but if you can maintain a job and if you can continue to pass your classes, just, you can be a roommate in our house and you can do your own thing. Mm. And so for years of kind of fighting and, and battling for my, you know, quote unquote freedom, it was we kind of agreed to disagree and just kind of distance ourselves. Mm. And it was good for our relationship too. We have a very powerful personalities and it was like, well, I'll look over here and I'll do my thing over here. And um, eventually, you know, years down the road when I kind of went down my own path and I could learn things for myself and learn from my mistakes and see what I was doing, where it was healthy, where it wasn't. Um, we reconvened and really like completely reinvented my relationship with my family. Wow. So it was, it was, I needed to go out on my own, you know, it was like, you talk about like initiation for men. It was like, I, I, I couldn't be sheltered anymore, you know, mm -hmm. especially by all of the, I have so many women in my life. I just needed to, I needed to go out and make my own mistakes and let life raise me yeah. in a certain way. Yeah. Yeah. It's so interesting. I, I really connect to, you know, your, your mom's experience as well, because I think that my, my own mom, at some point she just realized she was never going to win with me. And so she, ha I think she still had a choice and I really, I'm grateful for the choice that she made to kind of let me run. <laughs> mm. You know, she let me sign up for the army when I was 17. Um, she let me move in with my girl, my high school sweetheart's parents. Um, she let me run, even though I know for her, it had to be very, I know that it was, it was hurtful, you know, to sort of see me choosing, you know, on the other side, but um, I, I want to, I'm curious about, you know, you shared prior that, you know, at age 21, you, you went on, uh, a trip to Ecuador and that sounded like a real turning point for you. And I'm curious if you can share about the trip, um, what it meant to you and like, what, you know, what was healing or meaningful about it for you? Cause one of the questions that I get also is like, great. I'm aware now that I have some, um, traits or challenges that came from my experience of growing up with an absolute distant father. What do I do about that? <laughs> And I know my path, but, you know, I'd love to hear yeah. what, what turned for you. So, yeah, I got invited with one of my really good friends um, that I'm still insanely close with today to Ecuador. And it was, it was, we, we, for two weeks, we stayed out and we lived with the village, like the native village. So this was, you know, it was way out there in the jungle. Mm. Um, and you know, we, like I talked about, I mentioned briefly, like the, the process of initiation for men and how we're kind of missing that in the culture, you know, and how so many cultures um, before us and, and even current, like how that's such a state, like a foundational um, practice for men. Mm -hmm. And so I felt like Ecuador was kind of like my initiation. Um, it was the most uncomfortable experience ever, you know, like I didn't speak Spanish, so I couldn't speak like to people. I couldn't communicate. Um, it was, it took like in the middle of the jungle, it was, it took so much energy just to like operate, you know, mm. to walk to, it was, it, it occurred as very draining. Mm. Um, there were ants that if they bit you would give you a fever for four days. There were spiders that would, you know, kill you within 10 minutes. It was there was just so much to, it was such a different world. Wow. Um, and I really struggled. It's so interesting, you know, I, I hear like, so you're 21, you're in the middle of nowhere in a foreign land, in a jungle where you can't speak the language. Um, 
where the wrong plant, wrong drink, wrong bite can kill you. It's so interesting, you know, thinking about how it in a way maybe was the only thing that could bring you to your knees, you know, that you could actually yes. surrender a little bit. Yes. You had to get a, support. That is a really good connection. Yeah. Huh. It was, I didn't have a choice, you know, like there wasn't time to misbehave. There wasn't, you know, like it was, it was life or death in it. And it kind of like conditioned that experience in me of like, you know, this, it's not all a game and that I could die, you know, and I, and I got really sick. I don't, you know, I, I to get into the whole, it was, it's a very interesting story of how it happened. And I had a dream the night before and, um, but I got incredibly sick and I was stuck. I was struggling with acid reflux around this time too. And, uh, and I just was, I woke up and I was throwing up and threw up everything, all my stomach acid, and I couldn't keep anything down. And it was literally the most emotionally, physically, mentally, spiritually, like painful experience. Hmm. Like I couldn't lay down fully because the stomach acid would rise. The stomach acid would rise. I couldn't really sleep. I could drink water, but I would just throw it up. I could eat some bread, but I would just like my, my, my stomach, my body refused to hold anything in. Hmm. And, um, it was like an extreme, like forced detox. Wow. And, um, uh, I think it was, I had a dream or something the night before. And I remember it was just uh, two sentences on like a white canvas. This was the last part of the dream. And I think the last, um, the last word was relinquish something like that. And then I woke up and threw everything out, but I didn't know there was no doctors, you know, they were like, I had to rely on their view of medicine you know and and uh and i remember that that night when i was sick like the third day you know what i was kind of coming to uh julio which was the guy that we stayed with he was talking about how you know there's just different rules in the jungle and how people will die from like just bad energy and like sitting on a certain rock because historically you know there was this bad shaman or whatever and it just I had to surrender to that when wow. I was sick and, and, and there was no, and I remember like making a pact to myself of seeing myself in the States and now getting this objective view on how I was acting and operating and didn't have a sense of integrity. That's what was missing for me. It's like, there wasn't a consistent aligning purpose or, or peace that I could surrender to and, mm -hmm. and claim as my identity. And, um, and I made a pact to myself that like of all the things that I wanted to unlearn and all the things that I want to take on and it was effective. Like as soon as I got back, I, I got completely sober. Like I got a new job. Like I was meditating every day. It was just a complete 180. I completely changed my relationship to my family and which point where they wanted me to leave them. Like it was so that experience, and you look through, um, you know, there are different rituals from, from indigenous cultures where they'll, basically the, the premise is they put you through massive amounts of discomfort and they challenge you to stay open, hmm. to stay, to, to still stay open to the discomfort hmm. to not just like, you know, like, uh, power through it, but to open to that discomfort and, um, and, you know, I didn't get hung by my nipples, like, you know, some cultures do or thrown <laughs> in a thing of biting ants or whatever, but it was, it was really what I needed to surrender to kind of the, the masculine in life, you know, mm. like it's higher so power, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's so beautiful. Cause I hear, um, you know, it's so interesting and to, to know you a little bit, you know, even for people that are listening and meeting you for the first time on the podcast, um, you know, I can imagine you at 21 and, you know, with all the bravado and stubbornness and, you know, fake man stuff that, mm -hmm. that boys do, um, and sort of being in the jungle, realizing how, how much bullshit that is, you know, and, and I think also, you know, the thing that I most hear was, 
it sounds like you got permission to be who you really are. Um, you know, that it was okay to be you and to be mm. wise and to be connected and to be kind, you know, um, it's like you got permission to let go of whatever you were holding on to. Yeah. That's really beautifully said. And there was also like a little bit of like forced surrender in there too. <laughs> you know, <laughs> well, I it think that's what we like, need. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's like I was given permission and I was pushed into permission as well, mm. which is what I needed. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. Cause I think that, you know, I, I shared, I joined the army when I was 17, you know, barely 17. And, um, uh, you know, anybody that knew me, like I said, I was stubborn, you know, you know, my friends and family were like, they're, how are you going to go to basic training? I don't understand. Like, how are you going to let a drill sergeant tell you, but there's something about the structure and the, the, the rigidness and integrity of it that, you know, forced me to surrender. And, you know, truth is, you know, in order to survive that, I had to surrender. Um, and I think, you know, I never thought about it in that way until you were sharing that, but I'm like, wow, that was like, that was really kind of a, you know, my own sort of, uh, initiation, I think into what was next for me in my life. It was like one place that I could kind of rely on. You know, I think about, um, it's very hard for me to rely on people, you know, cause I'm scared they're going to disappoint, but you know, the army, has been like a father figure in that way to me. Cause it's always been there, you know? Yeah. The structure of it itself. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. a pain in the ass, but it's always there for me and it's not going to let me down. So yeah, it's consistent. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Do you have something like that? Um, something like that now? Yeah. Well, this is, this is kind of more like, this is like transitioning into more of the men's work now. Yeah. Um, because yeah, this is, that's what kind of men's work provides me now is, mm. is a space, you know, and I, I'm in a group of, uh, 60 guys, you know, and it's, um, uh, the, the facilitator is a man named John Wineland and, um, he's been doing it for a while and these are all much older men. It's as interesting. I was thinking about this the other day is I'm the youngest probably by about 10 years mm. and these are all successful, trustable men, you know, all of them are still in their kids' lives and they, they've, they, there's wisdom. There's, there's, you know, like these are, these are a lot of the good conscious men in the world. Hmm. And, um, you know, I joined it for, I love men's work and, and what, when you say men's work, me, like what, what do you mean by men's work? Like what is, what does that mean for yeah, people that aren't that's familiar? A good, it's a good distinction. It's, um, basically we use the container of, we, we create a container of men to hold all of our experience, to call us forth, to mm -hmm. keep us accountable. So it's from, um, from like a, a world perspective, it's that the women in our lives have held enough and it's men coming together and keeping each other accountable of like owning the fact that we're men. Mm -hmm. And keeping each other accountable, being responsible for the evolution of masculinity in the world. And mm -hmm. that like, you know, you're the, the, the women don't always have to hold that stuff, like bring that stuff to us, mm -hmm. bring that stuff to the group. Um, and it's, we create a container where it's like, the more that you, you know, the more you're strengthening me and allowing me to hold space for you. And mm -hmm. I'm providing space for you to be healed. You know, so that's, that's one aspect. And then the other one is, you know, calling each other out and, and holding each other accountable and, but basically recreating the, the culture of masculinity mm. in the world. Mm. Um, that's so cool. Yeah. And I mean, I, I hear what, can you imagine if there was like men's work for you as a boy, you know, that provided that level of understanding and that, uh, such a powerful container for you, you know, like, no, like, you know, when I imagine the men's work, when they say no, that like, they really mean no. And when they say yes, they really mean yes. And when they say, I love you, they mean it. And it's like, mm -hmm. you're enough. 
and you can trust it. I just, I'm like, I, I think it's so beautiful that, um, not only that you found that, but I'm also curious about, you know, getting into kind of the superpowers that you've created from your experience. Um, you must be such a gift to the men's group too. And, um, can you tell us more about like some of the men's work that you're up to and, you know, how, what are the superhero traits that you think you got mm-hmm. through this experience? Um, yeah, that's a really good way to tie actually the whole conversation together because there's a group that I have that I kind of surrender to, you know, and I want to be led in and I, I'll still lead, you know, but it's, that's the intention. Mm-hmm. And then I have my own group that, um, that I lead and facilitate. And what I've noticed is um, one thing that I think makes women so powerful in the world today is they have a dynamic connection between their feminine and their masculine energy. You know, it's like women are, are born, it's okay for them to cry and be emotional and they're exposed to like their ambition and creating structures and businesses and leading, you know, and, and you can see women are very powerful and they're rising in the world. And I think for me, I was very connected with my feminine energy as well, being surrounded by so many women and, um, and then developing my own masculine free of conditioning. I think that's the big thing is I didn't, the, the awesome thing about not having a dad was I, I had less to unlearn, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, I was exposed, but I didn't have this pillar that really conditioned my behavior and that I was trying to seek validation from. And, you know, it was like, that wasn't there. So once I, I kind of created a, a clean slate, right, go ahead. I think that's such a great point. Um, I, I often think about that because I think about the gift of not having a father present because I see so many men who are like men and women who have to run it by the father. It's almost like that approval um, gets in the way of your expression. Um, so, you know, I can just see both sides of that. And it sounds like that that's, that's so true, right? Cause you kind of harder in the beginning, but maybe easier in the end, you know, <laughs> cause yeah, when you figure yourself out, then you, you're sort of unencumbered. It's such a gift, you know, in, uh, and, uh, you know, that clean slate from kind of the Ecuador experience and really like detoxing from conditioning, it was, I could just really choose to define what it is that I wanted masculinity to be and, and apply it to what I wanted the world to be like. So where I see it show up in the group is I'm very intuitive. I'm very perceptive. Mm. And especially with the emotional work that I've done, because it, it, it was very, I was very close to emotion. In the past year, actually, I've done a a ton of work. Um, I can sense things from people Mm. and I can use my emotion to reveal things to people of their impact. But at the same time, I can use my masculine energy to direct it and to structure it and to speak powerfully and, you know, like to lead and conduct the space. So I feel like, you know, doing a lot of this work, I can, I can kind of oscillate between both energies. And, um, it's, I think it occurs to people is very unique and, um, I can see people and and interact with people and lead people and impact people, um, in kind of a holistic way. Um, so it's cool to be able to, because especially in the group and stuff, I'm known to be very, um, pretty intense, like with reflections and, um, pretty assertive and like, yeah, like some would say even maybe borderline aggressive, but the other thing that's very present the whole time is I'm very loving Mm. and I can really show my heart and I can really show the emotions. Mm. And I think the experience of both of those qualities really, uh, makes paves the way for, um, for me to really powerfully impact and lead people. Totally. Totally. And really the, uh, you know, to evolve the face of masculinity. And I think that, um, you know, just imagining, and I think that that's a true, like, I think that's also a common trait, um, that is easy to take for granted, you know, um, only through becoming a coach, um, and being around other coaches or being in 
um, men's work or, or similar arenas, uh, was I able to realize that the way that I saw things, the way I could intuit, the way I could sense people or connect or build trust, like I never knew that that was a gift until I was much older, um, until I was in those circles. And so it's so, I mean, I'm just imagining your life experience in all kinds of ways where, you know, you, from a survival aspect, just like sensing are people on my side or not? Can I trust them or not? What's not being said? Mm-hmm. I'm just like, wow. I mean, the the superpower that you honed through that experience and now you get to use that and, and use it in a way that um, can hopefully fill the void that you didn't have as a boy. It's just like, mm. it's the coolest. Yeah. A big piece that you like trust. I think that's, that is a huge, like for men in the world, it's, it's trust. Mm. It's being trustworthy. It's being trustable. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that is probably one of the, that's one of the most important pieces to me is, and, and I know it is to you as well, mm. of like, am I a trustable leader? Yeah. Um, yes. Yeah. And also goes back to like sort of the gift and the curse of, um, I think growing up with an absent father, because um, it doesn't take, I mean, I've worked on this a lot because I realize that people are human beings. Um, but man, my sense of another leader's integrity mm. um, is so, I'm so sensitive to it, you know, because I think that I never wanted to be in another situation where I could count on somebody and they they were uncountable on. Um, but, you know, the curse is that, you know, it, if you if you aren't working with yourself and 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 getting supported, then you don't let anybody in. <laughs> but the gift is that um, you also know what it looks like to be trustworthy and to mm. to to be a reliable man, to be um, to be that for others. So, yeah, cool, man. Well, is there anything else that? Um, you think is important for, for the listeners to know or um, any other wisdom or insight that you want to share? Um, I guess just one piece around one thing that I really learned about, and, you know, I didn't talk a lot about, I talk a lot about the struggles, um, but with my family is what I've learned from my family. Like my, my mom split up what, 10 years ago or something. So my mom, my birth mom actually is with a man and uh, they're actually, they're getting married next month, November. I'm actually going to officiate the wedding. Wow. And um, just to bring it full circle of like, we went through so much like struggle, you know, and I I had a rough childhood Mm -hmm. and, but to kind of transmute that into like, the capacity that I have to love and like the depth that it brought me and the insight and the wisdom. Um, and to have this, these conversations with my mom now, you know, of like, and, uh, so my, my other mom and she's completely still, you know, my mom and her boyfriend, soon to be husband have, uh, a house and my other mom's always over there. And then his ex-girlfriend will go out with my mom to a concert in the level of uh, unconditional love that my family embodies. And I think mm-hmm. it's because of how unorthodox the situation was, is they really taught me how to learn how to love without limits. Mm-hmm. That there's no like there's no structure that can fully encapsulate love, you know, or limit it or confine it. And um just really grateful, mm. you know, for like uh, out of all of that turmoil, you know, and, and now putting the story together and really um, coming out to the world, you know, as, as a man or as, as like kind of having a sense of identity, it's, it's just such a gift. So I think just that there's no experience that you can't transmute, you know, and like I, a lot of people go through some dark stuff and it just equates to depth 
a depth of experience. Mm. Um, yeah, really. So I just wanted that. to end it on that note. You know, it's like yeah, I really, I really hear that. I really want to thank you for that too, because uh, you know it's so encouraging. I think to parents, especially you know, and especially I think a lot about you know, there's a lot of single moms raising uh, little boys and girls without dads, and um, mm. they're heroes. <laughs> Um, and I, I really hear that for your, your, your moms as well, you know, how at every step of the way they were there for you doing what they knew was best. And, um, I can just imagine, you know, on some of those days are like, I don't know how the hell this is going to turn out. I know my mom was thinking the same thing. Um, and yet here we are like healthy, kind men, um, that are up to cool things in the world. Yeah, if if they had gotten it perfect, then we wouldn't be who we are. Totally, totally. Yeah. All right, man. Well, I mean, you can't get better better ending than that. Um, <laughs> I really wanna wanna thank you for being on today and and sharing and um, this real gift. I know it will be for for our listeners. So thank you, man. Yeah, thank you, Ronnie. All right, thank you so much for listening. I hope you really enjoyed today's episode with Niall. Just a reminder, you can reach me at RodneyMuller.com. Please rate and review the podcast or share it with your friends. That's how uh, people find out about the podcast. And above all, that I hope all the people in the world that need to hear this message that grew up with an absent or distant father can get access to it. Uh, and with that, thank you so much for listening. Stay tuned for upcoming episodes. I hope you enjoy the stories. And please send me any feedback or thoughts that you have. You can get in touch with me again at RodneyMuller.com. Head up, heart higher. Head up, heart higher. Head